Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although we'll hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Vidar Sunstol at St. Paul Public Library's Highland Park Community Center. Scandinavian readers who have never visited the United States have come to know northern Minnesota intimately through the inspired work of Norwegian crime novelist Vidar Sunstol. He is best known both in his native country and abroad for the Minnesota Trilogy, The Land of Dreams, Only the Dead, and The Ravens. The series, translated to English by Tina Nunali, centers around a U.S. Forest Service officer whose happy, unassuming life on Lake Superior is turned upside down by the grisly murder of a Norwegian tourist. The Land of Dreams won Sunstall the Riverton Prize for Best Norwegian Crime Story in 2008. Sunstall's newest novel, The Devil's Wedding Ring, picks up with the mysterious death of an occult folklore researcher on Midsummer Eve. It is a story American fans have been craving, not only taught with suspense, but steeped Norwegian culture past and present, according to the University of Minnesota Press. Its English translation debuted in September. First of all, I would like to say how happy I am to be, to be back in Minnesota, which is the only place I've ever considered more or less a, a second home to me. Uh, after living here for a couple of years and then spending five, six years writing three novels that takes place in Minnesota and then spending the next, pretty much next 10 years talking about Minnesota <laughs> in, in Norway and other countries. Uh, I've never been here before, though, in Highland Park Library. Uh, it's, a, it's a real privilege, and I mean that in the, in the actual sense of the word, a real pri privilege for me as a Norwegian writer to, to have an American audience. It's not something that that many uh, Norwegian writers have, and uh, it's a privilege to have a, a very good uh, publisher who can facilitate this kind of of events and make it possible for me to actually meet uh, my American readers. Uh, that is uh, deeply appreciated. Now, you might not, may not know this, but even Norwegians sometimes fall victim to vanity. And uh, thus it happens that I, every now and then I might read an article about myself 
in a newspaper or online or a review. Not often though, not too often, but sometimes. And uh, I have noticed that uh, I'm quite often referred to as a somewhat different crime writer, which I don't mind. But uh, I have also then decided that I could just as well make this a somewhat different crime writer speech, which means that I'm not going to talk about you know, plotting techniques or how I do my research or what's the weirdest way I've killed someone in a book <laughs> or uh, crime in Norway as opposed to crime here in the States or I'm not even going to talk about the international success of the so-called Nordic Noir genre. I'm going to talk about ghosts and for those of you who have read the Minnesota trilogy, you would know that there is a ghost in that trilogy. The ghost of the Ojibwe medicine man, Swamp or Caribou. It's actually a very important character in the novels, if you can call a ghost a character. And uh, there's a ghost in the Devil's Wedding Ring too, or at least there are stories about a ghost. Still, it's not this, these kinds of ghosts that I would like to, to talk about. Um, in the opening essay of his book, The Heart Can Be Filled Anywhere on Earth, the late great Minnesota writer Bill Holm describes his hometown, Minneota, as, quote, a very small dot on the ghost of a vast ocean of grass. Well, that's a great image the ghost of a vast ocean of grass. Um, Holm was uh, obviously talking about a tall grass prairie of western Minnesota, which is long gone, except for some tiny scattered fragments. But what exactly is the ghost of a landscape? How does it manifest itself? It, can cert it, it certainly doesn't come flying down the hallways wearing a white sheet in the middle of the night. No moaning or clanking of chains. I think it's fair to say that it's more subtle than most ghosts of men and women. To quote Bill Holm again, more implication than presence. And these kind of implications form a substantial part of what you might call the foundations of both the Minnesota Trilogy and the Devil's Wedding Ring. And I will focus on these ghostly foundations in this speech. In the first book of the Minnesota Trilogy, The Land of Dreams, uh, there is a passage where the it's a chapter where the main character, Lance Hansen, and his seven-year-old son, Jimmy, visits the Great Lake Aquarium in Duluth. And I would like to read some of it for you as an example of what I'm talking about. They reached the three big fish tanks, which extended from floor to roof, two stories high, rather, rather like gigantic test tubes. Jimmy tipped his head back to look up. Lance did too. High overhead, they could see daylight through the glass roof. Above them swam scores of fish, 
although most of them were actually not moving. They were hovering there in the water. Their streamlined shapes, dark and glistening silver. Occasionally, one of them would flap its fins and dart away. Lance soon noticed that there was a system to how the fish were distributed. Various types dominated different levels in the tanks. The fish at the very top were just dark shadows high above. And there were big fish, at least six to nine pounds, trout and salmon. He also saw a couple of eels and plenty of smaller fish that he couldn't identify. Look, Dad, cried Jimmy. He was pointing at something right in front of them at the bottom of the tank. Look, under that lug. There were lots of tree stumps on the bottom of the tank. Quite a few rocks too, made to resemble a natural habitat. And then Lance caught sight of the big fish lying next to a log, not moving at all. It looked like it was almost as long as Jimmy was tall. Its head was strangely compressed so that its mouth almost looked like a duck's bill. And from its lips hung several long thread-like protuberances that's a sturgeon, said Lance. Look, there's another one, Jimmy pointed, to the right of that big rock over there. And then he saw another one and a fourth one. None of the fish moved. They were resting at the very bottom of the tank that must have been a good 65 feet deep. Black shapes against the black bottom, strange prehistoric looking creatures. Occasionally, one of them would open its mouth slightly, but that was all. Otherwise, they didn't budge. Lance raised his head to look up through all the water that was held in place by those thin but strong walls of glass. He imagined them standing next to each other on the bottom of Lake Superior, father and son, and it felt as if that was where they belonged, enveloped by the lake. He pictured the bottom of a canoe gliding above them, paddles, were dipped into the water and pulled out again, quietly and rhythmically, soundlessly propelling the canoe forward. Now, in, in this scene, I, I try to sort of conjure up the ghost of Lake Superior as it must have been a long time ago with its original abundance of life still intact. And I do so by showing the tiniest little glimpse of it, encapsulated in test tube-like glass tanks, more implications than presence, I would say. And however, when I was writing this back in 2006, 2007, after returning to Norway, after my, my, my years in Minnesota, I'm pretty sure that I didn't think of it as the ghost of anything. And the reason being that I had barely started to discover this way of looking at the world. And this discovery underlies the entire Minnesota trilogy. One could almost, one could almost say that it is the trilogy. However, I did not reflect much on these things until later. But in hindsight, I see now that's, that that's what was going on. It changed me from a writer with an intensely introvert approach to one with a much more inclusive approach, an approach that blurs the borders between the individual and its surroundings. And this is why in the trilogy, Lance Hansen almost becomes a part of the North Shore landscape. 
and it becomes a part of him. The way I see Lance Hansen, he is unthinkable without the Great Lake. And to me, this does not only apply for fictional characters. It goes for the rest of us too. There are many unsubtle bonds between people and their surroundings. Be that, you know, a big cityscape or the North Shore or the interiors of, of Norway makes no difference. And some of these bonds, maybe, maybe most of them, consist of stories that we tell each other, myths and legends about what took place at that particular spot or who did what to whom by the riverbend long ago. And I, for one, love these things. They make me feel like I belong, not only in Norway and Telemark where I live, but that I belong in the world. The Minnesota Trilogy and the Devil's Wedding Ring are not so distant cousins. The sense of place and of landscape plays a huge role in both works, as does the local folklore, mostly Native American in the trilogy, and very old Norwegian myths and superstitions in the new book. The new book, The Devil's Wedding Ring, explores mysteries of both religious and criminal variety connected to a stave church from the 13th century. And for those of you who don't know what a stave church is, it's a very particular uh, kind of wooden church from medieval times, from the, usually from the 1200s and 1300s, and they are known only, found only in Norway. And uh, there used to be somewhere, probably somewhere between 1,000 and 2,000 of them. It was the, the, the most common kind of churches, but uh, being made out of wood, they, alas, most of them burnt down. So, but still there are 28 of them standing. And, and one of these uh, is the Stave Church in Eidsborg, in the county of Telemark, uh, where I live. And um, the legends and myths concerning this uh, Stave Church are among the most prominent ones in Telemark. And the most prominent of those legends is the one about the ritual that took place every midsummer night. Every midsummer night on the 23rd of June, no doubt echoing some ancient, long forgotten pagan ritual, the church's saintly statue was carried around a little lake three times, then ceremonially washed in that same lake. And this ritual should have ended in 1537 when Norway went from being a Catholic country and became Lutherans. But it didn't. It just went on uh, well into the 19th century. And that dis despite numerous letters from numerous bishops in Oslo who, uh, who, who advised them strongly to, to end this, this ritual. But the little town of Eidsborg is far from Oslo even today. And a couple of centuries ago, it would have taken at least a week to get there from the capital. And if it happened that a new priest showed up with a burning desire to rid the land of everything that smelled of pre-Reformation, 
he was still only one man against the farmers of Eidsborg. And it never took much time to convince these priests that they, they were better off playing along than trying to change what had always been. The region of Telemark is more connected to ancient Norwegian folk culture and superstition than any other area of the country. These old traditions and customs have always been particularly pronounced there. And at the same time, the mystical dimension, dimension of Telemark also forms an important part of Norwegian cultural history in general. It was there that many of the nation's common folk tales and legends were written down for the first time in the 19th century by folklorists who, much like their brothers Grimm, traveled around in an attempt to preserve what was left of the, the old oral storyteller culture. And it's, it's against this uh, background that the events in the Devil's Wedding Ring play out. My two main characters are perhaps a, a slightly odd couple. The private investigator Max Fjellanger and Tiriel Vesteli, librarian at Telemark University, single mother and obs obsessed with crime novels and old, old superstitions. Initially, my intention was to have only one protagonist, namely Max. Tiriel was meant to be a, a minor character, but she, as soon as I started writing about her, she entered the stage with such a bravado that I, I soon realized that this girl would never settle for a small role in the drama. And I simply had to admit to myself that, I, okay, this is going to be a book with two main characters. Max Fjellanger, a middle-aged man who's lived in the States for 30 years, but who is originally Norwegian, he is uh, quiet and he's the kind of guy who minds his own business. Tiril, I would say, is the direct opposite. She sticks her nose into absolutely everything, and she is certainly not the quiet type. Her hair looks like it has exploded, and she talks a lot, and she is far from being the perfect mother, although she does her best on her own with her five-year-old son. She's a single mom since the boy's father left them, which was just as well. The guy had live free or die tattooed on his upper arm and now lives with his mother. Tiril is 80% made up. The last 20% are based on two or three girls that I've known who were a bit like her. A certain kind of crazy Telmark girl that you can run into if you go there. So be careful if you do. In the Devil's Wedding Ring, as Max and Tiril get to know each other, they are pulled into events that they are completely unprepared for. And the reader enters a world that is both, both um, familiar and yet foreign, uh, and modern yet ancient, and realistic and yet mystical. The idea and inspiration for the Devil's Wedding Ring came from two sources. One is the great folklore heritage of my home area. The other one is more personal and stems from my early childhood. I must have been five or six years old and I was riding in the back seat of our car with my parents in front. 
I can't remember where we were going or why we drove past Eidsborg Stave Church. From where we lived, the church is a long detour, no matter where you're headed. But there it was, this strange little building with the color of an old pine tree and almost as organic too, as if it had grown right out of the soil in that particular spot. And my father told this story about how people long ago used to carry an ancient wooden statue around the little lake next to the church. And as we drove by, I pictured a procession of people by the lake carrying that statue, chanting old mysterious songs. And it must have made a huge impression on me because I never forgot it. It is certainly no coincidence that the ritual at Eidsborg took place on Midsummer Night. In the old days in Norway, up to the end of the 19th century, the night between the 23rd and the 24th of June used to be the night to harvest any kind of plants that were supposed to hold healing or magical powers. And at the same time, it was a dangerous night to be wandering around the woods and the fields, since the gateway to the, to the other world was believed to be open, and thus making us accessible to an army of unknown beings, some visible, some not. And this duality is perhaps what characterizes the midsummer night of Norwegian folklore more than anything else. The promise of something wonderful mixed with the threat of horrors unknown. And it was said that if a girl picked seven different kinds of wildflowers on that particular night, then went to bed with the flowers under her pillow, she would dream of her future husband. But then again, who would know whether the dream wasn't just a trick played by a creature that had slipped through the gateway and now lusted for the human girl? These beings, be they imagined or not, were possibly transformed versions of gods and demon-like figures from the pre-Christian era, when the landscapes of Norway were home to a plethora of spiritual beings of whom we know very little today. It's the same hills, the same rivers and creeks and boulders now as them, but it seems as if it has all, in a way, stopped speaking to us the way it must have done to our ancestors. But then again, perhaps it's all in the eye of the beholder, or rather in the, in the ear of the listener. Perhaps, perhaps landscapes never stop speaking, and it's just that we can't hear them anymore. And if that is the case, it means we could be surrounded by whispers and cries without even knowing it. Eyes might glare at us, but we are unable to look back at them. We are like a blind person walking through a room full of monsters, feeling completely safe. Now, of course, this way of using the Telemark landscape in a book is also to conjure up a ghost. Not so much the ghost of the actual landscape as in Bill Holmes' essay on Minota and the vanished tallgrass prairie, or indeed my own little example from the Great Lake Aquarium, but perhaps the ghost of something that once existed between this landscape and its inhabitants, a certain zone where the borders between humans and nature 
were not as fixed as it is these days, when most people, also in Telemark where I come from, are much more interested in the monetary value of a piece of land than of how that land might speak to us, if only we knew how to listen. From where does it derive this way of looking at the world that I wasn't fully aware of until I had written the Minnesota Trilogy, but which certainly was there before that, just not uh, articulated. Well, I, I have given it some thinking over the last few years, and I have come to that it could be my grandfather's fault. Uh, it's my mother's family that comes from Telemark. My father was from the, from the West Coast. Still a good man, though. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, my mother's family, most of us still live there in this particular corner of Telemark even. And the thing is that nobody really knows when we arrived. So when someone in our family tried to do genealogy, they never get to as far back as, you know, they can find someone who actually came to the area. We've always, it seemed like we've always been there. We've never been anywhere else. And uh, um, what that means is that there is no past anywhere else than in that particular landscape. To us, talking about like my, my, my private personal past, that past is solely linked to a certain landscape in Norway. And uh, <coughs> and as far back as we know, our relationship with the forests have been more or less that of an old fisherman's relationship with the sea. The forests have provided for us, be that through logging, hunting, fishing, or otherwise. And sometimes the forests have taken our lives. And only for the last two generations or so have we made ourselves more or less independent of the woods, financially independent, that is, mentally, emotionally. At least some of us are still deeply connected with the world of the forests, its lakes and rivers, its meandering creeks and bone-colored marshlands. Myself, I left all this sometime in my late twenties. That is, I stopped going to these particular woods that we have been bound to for so long. But before that, in my early teens, I spent a lot of time with my maternal grandfather, who lived on a farm deep in the woods. He was a widower, and he had lived his entire life in and off the forests. Now his main interest in life seemed to be the stories that he told me whenever I turned up at his place, which was several times a week for several years, from when I was around 12 till perhaps 17, 18. It always proceeded in the same way, these visits. He was lying on the sofa while I sat on a chair, more or less, at his feet. His hands were clasped behind his neck, his eyelids heavy from memory and from drowsiness. And then he spoke, and I didn't. I kept my mouth shut, and uh, if I was lucky, he could keep it up for hours. 
other nights he would last only an hour or so. I knew it was time to leave when he began to snore. <laughs> so I left him sleeping and returned the next night, or perhaps the night after. And I, I really don't know why, because I was a teenager and I should have been interested in other things than listening to an old man about to fall asleep on his sofa. And I was kind of interested in other stuff too. I was interested in girls and in, in soccer and in music and all that, but still I just, I could not keep away from that farm in the woods and that man on that sofa. And all his stories took place in the forests. Usually they were from his own life and involved hunting, fishing, logging, but more than anything, they were about encounters with other people. A whole army, a whole army of long gone men and women who had lived and worked in these same woods and died there. After a year or so, I had heard all the stories several times. Still, I never tired of them, or rather, I think it was a situation itself that I kept coming back to. Not necessarily being aware of it, though. Through my grandfather's stories, the landscape of the forest became very prominent in my imagination before I had even ventured into these forests on my own in any serious way. <clears throat> and when it was time to do so, during my teens, when I started to walk in the forests and on the moors, sleeping outside, fishing, hunting, all these things that my family had been doing for centuries, I encountered a landscape that was already charged with the power of my grandfather's stories. And it seemed like every creek and boulder I came to was an old acquaintance from those nights at that farm. And to me, this became, I think, my deepest and most formative experience of a landscape. I think it's safe to say that this is one of the things that, that made me the writer that I am today. Of course, there are other things that have played perhaps even a greater role. Things that haven't got anything to do with my family. Rather, on the contrary, in order to become the writer that I am, I had to leave all this behind. The forests and the ties that bind. You can't, you can't have the cake and eat it too. At least not in my family. There you either eat the cake or the cake eats you. And you become a part of it, of the ancient woodlands, until you and it can no longer be told apart. But still I carry these places and these stories with me everywhere. I never, I never go in there anymore, into this particular forest that shaped us for so many generations. I haven't done so for at least 20, perhaps 25, perhaps even 30 years. And um, I don't have to go there. It has become a truly internalized landscape. It has become literature. Three novels from the north shore of Lake Superior, and it certainly seeped into the devil's wedding ring too, as did, I think, my grandfather's actual stories. And I'm going to read for you now from that book two excerpts. <clears throat> In the first one, the two main characters, Max and Tiril, have just met. 
Max is visiting Tirille at home for the first time. She is a local girl while he has lived in the United States for decades and just returned to Norway. The taxi dropped him off near an apartment complex. Three boys who looked like they might be Somalis were riding their bikes around the parking lot. They were shouting to each other in a foreign language and didn't seem especially interested in Max. He found the right door and rang the bell. Soon Tiril appeared, giving him a nervous smile. He was nervous too. Around her neck she wore a chain with a locket that he hadn't noticed the first time he met her. It looked intricate and old. Come on in, she said. He followed her up the stairs to a hallway with doors to several apartments. A horseshoe hung on the wall next to Tiril's door. She had an impressive book selection, he noticed with satisfaction when he went inside. And on the walls hung a row of pictures that he figured must be of her family. An old black and white photo caught his eye. It was bigger than the others and showed a group of five adults lined up next to each other. A child of two or three sat on a small table, reaching out his arms toward the woman who was no doubt his mother. Then Max realized that the woman was tiril, but with her hair pulled up in an old-fashioned top knot. Is that you? Nope, she said, standing behind him. He could tell that she was used to hearing this question and that she found it amusing. Is it a reenactment of an old post photograph? It is an old photograph. But that is you standing there, isn't it? No, that's my great-great-grandmother. The picture was taken in 1898. Can you imagine what it was like for me the first time I saw it? As if you were looking in a mirror? No, more as if I'd lived before. But there's something else odd about that photo. Can you see what it is? Max leaned forward and studied the photograph carefully. Look close at my great-great-grandmother's face, she said. Max did as she said. While the four other people were looking straight at the camera, the gaze of Tyrell's doppelganger seemed to be drawn to something happening outside the frame of the photo. Or maybe, maybe it was more as if she had simply forgotten about the photographer and the child stretching out his little arms in an attempt to get her attention. She seems a little out of it. Not just a little, said Tyrell. She's dead. People didn't exactly have a lot of pictures of each other back then. A photograph was both rare and expensive, and a person might have their picture taken only once or twice during their whole lifetime. Maybe never. And when somebody died, it was the last chance to immortalize that person. And they often tried to create everyday scenes. For example, the deceased wearing their best clothes might be seated with the rest of the family at a table set with coffee and cakes. My son calls her grandma death. Isn't she wonderful? Uh, sure, but uh, how did they get her to stand? Oh, she's probably tied to a board that uh, reaches from her feet and up to the back of her head, 
and then the board is leaning against the wall. We can't see it because of the other people in the photo. And the little boy, Mark said, yeah, what about him? Well, it almost looks like he's trying to get her attention. Yeah, well, of course he's trying, he's trying to get her attention. That's his mother standing there. For a moment, Max pictured Anne, his deceased wife, dead, sitting in a chair next to the swimming pool with a drink in her hand. Uh, not exactly what I would have chosen to hang on the wall, he said. Tyrell tilted her head to one side, a pensive look on her face. I think it makes me appreciate life more. And besides, it's fun to see everyone's reaction. People, some people completely freak out, she said, laughing. And then a little bit, uh, or rather towards the very end of the book, uh, as Tyrell is preparing for the great events that they anticipate will go down on Midsummer Night, she goes for an evening walk in her hometown. But before that, she is at her mother's house where she grew up. So she is in what used to be her old room, and she has just tucked her little boy in. He's sleeping in what used to be her bed. One more day until midsummer. Nobody had prepared Tyril for what she was about to do tomorrow night. At the same time, she felt as if her whole life had been one long preparation for this. She thought about all those evenings she'd spent as a teenager sitting in the back seat of a car, riding up and down Main Street, while she tried to be like everybody else, who never gave a thought to life's limitations. The feeling she'd had in school of never being seen, yet everyone always seemed to be staring at her. The dreams she'd had, huddled under the covers, about breaching the speed of sound in a fighter jet roaring over Burr and causing a sonic boom that simultaneously shattered the windows in all the houses and hot rods. Or of being a green-eyed girl with a fiddle, someone who could cast a spell over any boy she liked, enticing them one by one into a waterfall with her music as she waited for them in the warm torrent. All these things had been ways in which she'd prepared herself for the unprecedented and groundbreaking events that would soon occur. She settled herself more comfortably on the floor by the bed and cautiously stroked her son's soft hair. His grandmother must have washed his hair earlier in the day. Maybe he didn't make as much of a fuss about it when she did it. Having Magnus had been the most important preparation of all. She felt an unbreakable force of will rise up like a dragon inside her, spewing fire at those who wanted to do her harm. And that same dragon also spewed fire on behalf of Magnus, since his own personal dragon still had many years ahead to take shape. Well, at least you can't say that your mother shies away from anything, she whispered, keeping her voice low so she wouldn't wake him. Then she quickly left the bedroom that used to be hers. She headed off towards the center of town. As she took the pedestrian walkway over the railroad bridge, a freight train came thundering past, making the whole bridge shudder under her feet. She leaned over the railing and looked down 
as one train car after another disappeared below until the last one passed by and only the motionless track remained. Three teenage boys were sitting at the worn table in front of the fast food joint looking as if they were up to no good. Tidil recognized one of them. The boy's father had been of the same ilk, operating on a wavelength which meant that most human utterances were interpreted as declarations of war. He probably hadn't changed. The man's son glared at Tyril as he spat in her direction. It was strange what ended up being passed on from one generation to the next. She walked all the way up to the two churches. There she found the grave of her great-great-grandmother and read the name and dates etched into the headstone. How young she was when she died. Yet she'd managed to have one child, Tiril's great-grandfather. And that was all it took for Tiril to be standing here tonight. This woman, who had long since been reduced to dust and bones in the earth beneath Tiril's feet, had looked exactly like her. Whenever the woman had looked in a mirror, she had unknowingly been looking at the face of her descendant. And whenever Tiril looked at herself, she saw the great-great-grandmother, a face that had traveled through time. Someday, Tiril would also be buried here, not far from her ancestor. Where would the face they shared end up next? Would a future descendant see a photograph of Tiril Vesteli and feel as if she had lived before? Tiril stood up and looked out at this place she called home, an intricate network of interconnections linking both the living and the dead. <clears throat> the living and the dead. My grandfather is long dead, and his stories are remembered by few, hardly even by me anymore. I mostly remember him lying there on that sofa, in a house deep in the woods, his hands clasped behind his neck, his eyelids heavy with memory and rosiness. But no matter what those stories were about, their ghosts still live in the foundations of my writing. The ghost of that sofa lives there. The ghost of those evenings. And actually, my grandfather is portrayed in the Minnesota trilogy, although slightly obscured in the figure of an old Ojibwe man, Lance Hansen's ex-father-in-law, Willie Dupree. And when I created Willie, I thought of my grandfather. And he would have been surprised to hear that he is portrayed in a novel as a Native American. But I know that he would have liked it too. And he would have been able to see the likeness between him and Willie. Sometimes it happens during an interview or a Q&A that I get the question, how would you describe yourself as a writer? Uh, you know, this is a much, much dreaded question among writers. Of course, the answer is we would rather not. But if we have to, I think it goes without saying that for most of us, there will be more than just one answer to such a question. How would you describe yourself as a writer? 
For me, one answer would certainly be my grandfather, in the guise of an old Ojibwe, is telling ghost stories on the north shore of Lake Superior. And that's who I am. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Vidar Sunstall and his work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering how Vidar Sunstall first found out about Minnesota. I met an American girl. And... Uh, yeah, so before that I, I hadn't really ever thought about going to the States. Uh, and suddenly it just became much more, much more relevant to me to come here. And yeah, because I was a writer and, and she had a proper job, it was much easier for me to go here than for her to move to Norway. And then at that time, when I moved here, she was living uh, in Kentucky. Lexington, Kentucky, and so I moved for the first months in the States I lived in Kentucky, and that was kind of, you know, exotic for a Norwegian, and that's, in a way, that's what you, but that's, like, that's what you're supposed it to be when you go halfway around the, the globe. It should be no different from home. And then, but my wife, she's a biologist, and she was um, applying for jobs all over the States, also among, also with uh, the U.S. Forest Service, and she got a job up in Tofte, on the North Shore. And, uh, and we drove up there for the first time from Lexington uh, for the interview, the job interview. And for me, that was a really, I don't know what you call it. It, was not, it wasn't an absurd uh, experience, but it was uh, one that I never forget anyway. When we, after, after having sort of crossed the semi-prairie, the monotonous landscapes of of, of, of uh, Indiana and, and uh, whatnot, and we came to, suddenly we came to Lake Superior, and the whole, almost like coming to a different planet, suddenly everything changed, and we went down the, the, the steep hills towards Duluth, and I, this was on uh, uh, was Veterans Day, it was uh, in the springtime, is that Veterans Day? Memorial Day, yeah. It was on Memorial Day. And it was raining, like cats and dogs, and, um, and we were actually listening to a Prairie Home Companion on the, on, <laughs> on the car radio, and uh, Garrison Keillor was singing this incredibly sad song that he had probably written himself about this old man who observed um, Memorial Day every year. And every year there were fewer and fewer of his old, old uh, veteran comrades left. And in this rather gloomy uh, atmosphere, we, we drove down to Duluth and in into the tunnels with the stylized Viking ships over. And I, I thought to myself, well, I guess we have actually fi finally left the south now. <laughs> and uh, as we drove up along the, along the coast, I started to see all these names on, on the mailboxes, and some of them were my neighbor's names. So it was kind of strange to go halfway around the world and then end, uh, ending up with the same families. But yeah, it was a really, for a writer, 
I mean, I had no idea that I would end up in Minnesota when I moved to the States. And uh, it was just like, for me, it was just like a true adventure. And I was welcomed in such a, in such a wonderful way um, as a Norwegian. And, um, and so, soon I started to talk to people and they told me, people told their stories about their families and the immigration. And you know, you know the immigra actual immigration isn't, that didn't happen that long ago up there. It happened around 1900 and out to the 1920s and 30s. And I, I met people whose fathers and mothers had been Norwegians, people who could remember that their father or their mother sung for them in Norwegian. And it was really, it was moving. And also for me as a Norwegian, I don't have any sort of uh, immigrant, immigration experience in my family or in the culture at large. And uh, so it was a very, it was like a new thing opening to me. And I went uh, to the old uh, graveyards and looked at, the, at all the gravestones and saw the people, especially the people who had, who had actually left Norway in a, at a very high age, like 70, 80 years old, who had come with the rest of the family. And, uh, I know these people never knew a word of English and they had lived on the west coast of Norway their entire lives and then they died up in the, in the, in the north woods. And it made, uh, it really moved me, it really touched me and it still does. And uh, that is sort of the basis for my, both for writing those books about Minnesota and for why I feel so tied to, to Minnesota. That was a long answer. <laughs> this question comes from an audience member wondering how often Sunstall visits the North Shore. I've been there twice since we, since we left. We left in 2006, we moved back to Norway, or I moved back and she went to Norway for the first time. And uh, after that, I've been I have been on the North Shore twice with uh, some of my readers on a sort of a land of dreams uh, bus tour. Where <laughs> that was interesting. Uh, it took, uh, yeah, we were up there for like two, three days and I, it was like 30, 40 avid readers and me locked in a bus. And <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was actually very nice though. It's, uh, not that often that you are just surrounded by people who are interested in what you do. So, but uh, I haven't been up there with my wife again. She hasn't been there again. Uh, you know, it's, when I do things like this, I don't have to pay for it myself. And it's, it's expensive to go whole family to the States. Uh, so um, now, and I can't get up there this time, but I, I hope we will be able to go there for some sort of a vacation once to Duluth or to Grand Marais, I would love that. This audience member notes that Sunstall writes a lot about the forests along the North Shore. Are they similar to the forests in Norway? They are the same in the sense that the, the trees, the vegetation is the same. The same kind of trees as the fir trees and pines and, and you know, aspens and birch. And, uh, and the same kind of grass, so, so and, and that makes that makes everything smell in the same way. 
they does at home. So I remember the first time I got out of the car when we have when we stopped up on the North Shore. It smelled exactly like the place where I grew up, actually. But the forest as a landscape is very different because the up up here the forests are so so flat and so dense. In Norway, they are much more. Uh, much more hills and valleys, and they're uh, much more open, so you can walk through them. You don't have to, you know, paddle canoes and stuff. So it's b both uh, similar and, and, and different. This audience member asks about the translation process for Sunstall's novels. I can say that I'm, I've been very lucky with my translator, Tina Nunali, who is, uh, I didn't know that back when she was chosen to to uh, translate the trilogy. She also translated the new one. I didn't know back then, but she is one of the best, if not the best, translator from at least Norwegian and Danish to American English. And she, 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 she was even knighted by the Norwegian king. No, no, not for not for because she translated the Minnesota trilogy, but, <laughs> but uh, for her, her, sort of her work for Norwegian culture in America in general. And I, honestly, I haven't read this The Devil's Wedding Ring so thoroughly in English because I, now I trust her a lot. But, but the, the trilogy, especially the first book, I knew nothing about her, so I read it, read the translation very, very carefully. And I had uh, sort of, <coughs> I had decided on a certain um, uh, page in the book where, uh, which only describes you know, Lance Hampson standing by the sort of by the by the lake uh, at night, when the, and then there's the description of the moonlight <coughs> on the on the water, and there's like little ripples in the water and the flickering of the light. And I knew that if she can get the <laughs> get this right in in both the content of it and sort of the musicality and the rhythm of the language and everything, then then I don't really have to to read much more. And she she really did pull off that pull that off perfectly. And I'm I'm. I'm eternally grateful to her for uh, the job that she did, especially with the trilogy, because that's uh, not a very easy work to translate, because it's a very, uh, uh, yeah, musical and uh, almost poetic kind of uh, crime novel sometimes. So yeah, I've been very happy, very lucky with the translator. Another audience member asked Sunstall what the role of Lake Superior plays in his novels. The lake was the first I saw when we came up to the North Shore. And suddenly I just saw that like immense uh, expand of, of, of gray water and the rain pouring down on it. And uh, uh, it just made an everlasting impression on me. And I knew actually very, very soon that this is something that I'm going to write something about. I had no idea what I was going to write, but I knew that I was going to write something about the lake. And uh, to me, the lake in that book is like, like I said, it's uh, Lance Hansen and the lake is like they, 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 they sort of, they mingle in a way. They, they, there's no real sharp border between those two characters or entities. And I wanted it to be like that because I, I thought of the like you say, this immense uh, presence of a lake like that. I thought if I'm going to write about an interesting character living in a place like that, he has to be sort of uh, receptive to, uh, to that kind of, of presence. And, uh, 
And then I, st I came up with this thing with his dream, and this, uh, where he, has, he hasn't dreamt for, what is it, eight years? And the last time he dreamt, he dreamt that he was standing on the, on the deepest, at the deepest point of Lake Superior, and he could breathe down there, but it was like ice cold, and he was about to, to die from the cold, not from not being able to breathe. And, and, uh, and that's very early in the first book, and that sort of set the, the, the course for the rest of the relation between Lance and, and, and the lake. So it, to, La to Lance, it's a dangerous place. In the, in the last book, in The Ravens, he, he nearly dies out on the, out on the ice. And it's, uh, yeah. But then again, when he finally has his big dream, because at, after nearly a thousand pages complaining about n never being not being able to dream again, I had to let him dream. And then it's like the, probably the longest dream in Norwegian literature ever is, I don't know. <laughs> I think it's like 40, 50 page, <laughs> pages. And, and, uh, and that dream is all about the lake too. And, uh, and there finally he meets uh, this uh, Ojibwe ghost, the ghost of uh, Swamp Caribou in the dream. And the, swamp, the ghost of Swamp Caribou in the dream shows him something and he says something about it. Just one sentence, and when Lance wakes up, that thing that he was shown by Swamper's ghost actually uh, enables him to solve, finally, the case, the murder case of the Norwegian tourist. So the lake is both very dangerous to him, but it also sort of brings him the, the solution to everything. This question asker wonders what Sunstall thinks about his books being categorized as crime novels. When I wrote the first book, The Land of Dreams, or when I wrote the, the Norwegian original, um, I didn't really know that I was writing a crime novel, and I didn't think of it as a crime novel until I was awarded the, the prize for the, 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 the best crime novel of the year, and then I, I was interviewed everywhere, and I couldn't say that this isn't a crime novel, so I sort of <laughs> just went along with it. And then, but then I wrote the second novel that is like, that disappointed everybody, and I am really happy that I that I did. I like to, I don't like to give people exactly what they expect. The, the second book, the first book, The Land of Dreams, is sort of a, it's a kind of a dark book, but it's also a slightly funny and folkloristic and quirky description of the North Shore. But the, but the the second book, Only the Dead, is like to the that, that is really the ice cold heart of the trilogy. And it's short, it's like a uh, crime novel is not supposed to be short, it's supposed to be really long so you can read it over the Atlantic on the airplane and all that. And so I made sure to make it really short. So, and, uh, but that, I think that's the, that's the book that I like, like the most of those three. I like all three of them. But I think that's, to me, that is the, the essence of the, of the whole thing, you know the ice, the storm, and all that. The last question of the night is what Vidar Sunstall likes to read. First of all, I don't get the time to read much, unfortunately. I've never uh, read much crime novels, but I do read with great pleasure the Icelandic crime writer Arnaldur Indridason, who is, in my eyes, the best crime writer of them all, at least in the Nordic world. And I love the way that he has made that he uses the Icelandic landscape, which is, is brilliant. I love those books. 
But uh, when I have time to read, I read almost exclusively history. So I, I read a lot about uh, Norwegian medieval history and earlier history. That's what I'm interested in. I hardly ever think about anything that uh, happened uh, you know, after, let's say, the 1500s. <laughs> so it's, um, I have a very old-fashioned um, mind. Yeah. I'm concerned with old, not an old-fashioned mind, but I'm cons very cons I'm concerned with what has been. I really am. I'm just, that's just, and that's just the what I. That's just the way I am. That's my my nature, really. Yeah. So I'm not very interested in. You know, many crime writers are are very sort of are very interested in um, the sociology of crime and of uh, of uh, the role that society plays in crime and all things like that. And I, I can certainly say that I'm, I'm interested in it as a private person, but as a writer I try to write about things that are not just, you know, popular and interesting here and now, but uh, things that I think will be equally interesting in, let's say, 50 years. So that, that kind of a murder that I describe on the North Shore and the sort of the things that led up to it and that whole history of a family, I think that's kind of one of those stories that perhaps if I'm lucky then can live on for a little bit longer than me. You never know. Okay, thank you. That wraps up our St. Paul Public Library event with Vidar Sunstall. Make sure to catch our next Club Book event with Dave Page at Washington County's R.H. Stafford Library. Dave Page is one of the foremost scholars writing today on the life and legacy of St. Paul native F. Scott Fitzgerald. His 2017 opus, F. Scott Fitzgerald in Minnesota, The Writer and His Friends at Home, is the culmination of a lifetime of research on the great American novelist. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Club Book Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Club Book events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.